This is a podcast with Aiden from the YouTube channel Socialism Done Left. He has many interesting videos, to say the least, including recently hosting a roundtable discussion with Noam Chomsky, which is pretty cool if you're familiar with him. Aiden is a self-described revisionist Marxist, and so I do my best to ask him a lot of questions and understand his point of view. We cover a lot of abstract topics, so I suggest using the timestamps in the description to navigate to what you might find relevant. Also, all of my podcast episodes are on Spotify, so that link is in the description as well. What is the fundamental part of capitalism? And I'm, I'm, I am not a, you know, uh, stickler for like, ha we have to get technical definitions, tech whatever definitions sure. we're using is fine. So like when you say, you know, fuck capitalism or whatever, it's like, what is the fundamental problem in capitalism you're, you have a problem with? Sure. So I guess, um, I, I try to boil down socialism to like an eight word definition, um, okay. which to me means like political democracy, workplace democracy, economic democracy. Okay. And then, um, uh, what's, what's the fourth one? I'm actually forgetting it. Um, oh, and like class, uh, sorry, um, I'm trying to figure out the exact words I want to use, but something like class compression or class abolition. So okay. in short, um, another the, the ways that sometimes I think of socialism is liberalism applied um, democracy to the political context, but in general, socialists want to apply democracy both within the workplace and to the economy as a whole. Okay. So it's this idea of extending uh, democracy beyond just like the government, but to like the rest right. of human life, more or less. Okay. Um, and then... Um, so if, in short, if I had to like link each one of these to a critique of capitalism, um, capitalism can be a political democracy. I'm not going to disagree with that. For the other three, though, um, I would, I would, on the first note, I would just argue maybe socialism can do democracy better. But that's a whole more complicated discussion. Sure. Um, for the three like economic disagreements, it would be um, for uh, workplace democracy. It's that most capitalist firms are, by their nature, pretty autocratic. Mm -hmm. um, your boss has control of what you do, and you have very little mm -hmm. say over what your boss does, except for leaving. Which more or less is akin to saying like, if you don't like the country, just leave it, sort of thing. Um, which is like a very undemocratic way to approach things. If you don't like the tyrannical government of Donald Trump, why not move sure. to Canada? Right. Um, then for um, like economic democracy in general, it's just this sort of idea that you want, um, fundamentally, like the simplest way to think about it is in terms of externalities. Um, so like an externality is when a private benefit to like a firm is not the same as the social benefit. So for example, on like climate change, firms love to produce products because it gives them profit, but they don't face the cost of of like carbon production. Right, pollution. And so, right, right, right. Yes. And so externalities are something that literally everyone except Austrians, I suppose, but literally everyone except Austrian economists think is real. So this isn't like a socialist thing, but socialists tend to think that like externalities are everywhere and all the time. Yeah. So they think that all markets have- Which I, really I think I agree with that a lot. I think like I am definitely of the side of like, we are way more interconnected and our actions have way more effects mm -hmm. in like an interconnected- rhizomatic way is the language that my friend likes to use. Mm -hmm. I think it's like... And the, the two main responses to that acknowledgement in modern times have been the so-called neoliberal or like marginal sort of revolution mm -hmm. um, and like a more like left or post-Keynesian approach to things. So the neoliberal approach is markets are flawed, but we can like design them better and apply them in all contexts to solve these incentive problems. Right. Uh, that's, the, that's the very, very short summary of neoliberalism, which I'm sure I'm not giving full... Yes, sure, 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 but, sure, sure. Um, the, the socialist perspective is basically like um, for a lot of things like basic needs, it seems like markets underserve them. So the idea is like in housing, it seems like markets underproduce housing, so people go homeless. It seems like markets underproduce education, so people go uneducated. It seems like markets underproduce innovation, so things go unresearched. Um, and so it's this sort of, um, if I had to point to two authors here, it would be like Mariana Matsukudo and Hajun Chang, both of whom argue from what's called a developmental state perspective, that the state can actively intervene in markets and make them more efficient at serving human needs. Um, I know that's like that's a that's a whole huge complicated concept. Sure. Um, but 
um, actually, I could recommend a podcast that both of them did with this one socialist guy. Um, if you want a very short summary of that kind of stuff, sure, um, I can find that in a little bit. Okay. Um, okay. So a couple things. So and I think I think we can, like I said, we can jump in in a um, a bunch of random like. We'll jump in in one any area and we'll eventually drill down. Okay, so oh, workplace... I should do one last oh, thing. Go the ahead. class abolition thing. It, it, this is the simplest oh, yeah. one to explain. It'll sure. take 10 seconds. Um, right now, there are some people who own enough wealth to make a living off of that. And so they are no longer like workers or they could choose not yeah. to work. In general, socialists want to compress people down either by bringing the poor up and the rich down. Sure. So everyone, so this sounds like a weird way to put it, but they, we want everyone to be a worker, as it were. And so there's no one who is not a worker, right. except for the 50% of society who isn't actually in the labor force at any given time. But sure. that's. We want everyone who works to be a worker, as oh, it were. Got it, got it, got it. Okay, okay. All right, so workplace democracy. I think this is um, mm. interesting to start. So I guess here's my issue. Um, so if I'm, your position is more or less that, like, if workers within a company should have more say in how that company is run, right, essentially? In short. Um, like, worker cooperatives, right? There's, like, a... A big deal. Yeah, worker cooperatives are one example of that model. There's lots of like there, there isn't like this binary where it's like autocratic firm yeah. versus non autocratic sure, sure, firm. Sure. There's lots of stuff in the middle. Like um, there's like so called um mutuals, which are like firms where employee it's or also called um employee stock ownership programs, mm -hmm. where the employees own the stock of that program. Yeah, right. Uh, so like if I you want gonna... a weird example of it, as a vegan, I quite like um Bob's Red Mill, which is a, okay. a mutual. So okay, I was well, I was gonna say so that so. There's a couple things. So one is the employee stock option, which seems like that fits mm -hmm. perfectly well within a yep. capitalist framework, right? But then I guess my other, and this is a more fundamental critique, I guess, is yeah. like I think like a problem with a workplace democracy is that it assumes that the workers at, let's say, the lowest level, right, mm -hmm. are in a position to be voting on decisions that are outside of their area of expertise, right? So... Like it, whereas in a, you call it autocratic, I would say just more hierarchical, you know, sure. uh, corporate setting or whatever. It's like people, like a manager is brought in who has an expertise in managing supplier negotiations or something like that. Right. And then all the mm -hmm. people who are actually talking to the suppliers, they don't necessarily know what's best fitting into the much bigger picture. Right. So how does it, how would a workplace democracy, it seems like it'd be well, inefficient. You know, you're sacrificing no, so I, I totally get that. And so um, I think one of the classic solutions to this is that for small firms, um, it, it, it's actually somewhat – have you heard of Hayek's local knowledge problem? Um, uh, you were talking about on that uh, podcast. I get a, it, a gist of it. Yeah, local knowledge. The, the basic gist of it, for those who aren't aware, I suppose, um, to the many listeners listening after yeah, that, right. um, yeah, sure. the local knowledge problem asserts that like um, – you know, let's say the big daddy government wants to centrally plan your economy. Well, they don't know as much, and I apologize for the dog, they don't know as much as the local firm does. So like the mom and pop shop, they know more about doing the business than the government does. So the government doesn't have the local knowledge that these fir that these employees, that these firms do. So I, there's this argument that in s particularly small firms, it's very easy to understand how including all of the employees could add knowledge. So the, just the manager's perspective on like how things work in like a 10 person firm probably ignores all the employees who know what the actual day is is like of doing their jobs. Now, I do think in large firms, as you're talking about, you get like you're talking thousands or hundreds of thousands of mm -hmm. employees. I think Amazon employs like I want to say like a million or two million or so people. Um, it's very hard to believe that like low level people have sufficient knowledge to vote on stuff which is entirely out of their realm of expertise. So one of the things that we have noted um, empirically is as cooperatives get larger, they tend to shift away from direct democracy to representative democracy. So now instead of like the 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 stockers on like the grocery shelves voting on how to do supply negotiations, they vote for their guy to like as the as like the 
the the stalker guy to go into the big representative council and then he's just part of these broader negotiations about like how did these sort of supply things so in short the solution um, is very similar to what we see in democracy in general it's that big democracies can't be direct they have to be representative for at least some of their functions um sure i know that's like a long answer yeah no well so i was going to say i guess like here's the example well let's mm -hmm. see so there's a different critique i guess i could go down which is kind of in the same boat but like what prevents workers from voting in their own self-interest that is in the like that is contrary to society's self-interest, right? So if you're a company that manufactures, I don't think that there is. Okay, no, well, let me like, give an well, let me give an example. So if you're, you're, let's say you're a company and you and you're a company manufactures insulin, mm -hmm. and there's I don't know, let's say a thousand people in the company, and fifty of them work in one department, and maybe they're like data entry, mm -hmm. or a hundred of them, or two whatever, two hundred of them or something. And then a new technology comes in and says, hey, we can replace 200 people with a more efficient data entry system. Mm -hmm. And if it's a workplace democracy, then those people would say, well, we'd lose our jobs. So it's against our self-interest. So we're going to vote against it. And then that company can't produce as much insulin, which is worse off mm -hmm. for the rest of society. So how do you balance that. So I think that, um, so I do actually agree on the one hand that I don't think worker cooperatives are just like these innately moral, like, like now that the workers get to vote, everything works yeah, out sure. fine. Right. Wow. I yeah. think that, um, it, it, there's actually literally a whole economic philosophy called mutualism, um, which is based on this idea of like, it's more or less like left anarcho-capitalism. It says no state, just a market of worker cooperatives and everything will work out perfectly. And I think that's silly right. um, for basically the reasons that you're bringing up. Um, one, because just like any other firm, they have market incentives. So firms want to like raise prices as much as possible. Um, firms want to like, I, I don't, we don't get into all of it, but like I do then agree within a firm, like as you're pointing out, like for the insulin, um, the basic question is why would employees ever vote to like eliminate their own jobs? Um, and so the basic answer is that in a worker cooperative style, it might be that they, um, so there's two answers. One is that the market will force them to. Let's say there's 10 cooperatives and only one of them votes to get rid of like the, the excess data entry, right? So now mm -hmm. it goes from 200 to 50 people or something mm -hmm. and they've saved on data entry costs and they've reduced the cost of insulin by, you know, 50% or something. Well, guess what? Now they'll outcompete the other cooperatives. So by this very same structure, which forces firms to adopt efficient structures, um, it would be the same sort of forces which force cooperatives to do it. Okay, I see. Um, so that's a pretty, so that's a pretty capital, I mean, competition centric. Yes, model, it's, it's right? very which much based on competition. Which is still centric to your, what, market socialism? I think that, yes, market socialists can adopt competition very much so, okay. Um, okay. which I do think is one of the like critiques of a more planning style system. Um, well, so, okay, so I was going to ask, so what if it is the case that, like, so I'm guessing, would you make it illegal for companies to not operate, uh, you know, this is hypothetical, mm -hmm. whatever, but in your model, is it illegal for a company to not be in a cooperative structure? Because from, your from what you were just saying, if you take the competitive... You know, mm -hmm. the co-op that is willing to vote out its, you know, employees or whatever, like eventually the, 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 the standard hierarchical corporation would compete mm -hmm. on all the co-ops, right? Which isn't that... Isn't well, that that's one of the relevant now? questions. Um, so like right now, cooperatives aren't expanding. And yet we have a lot of empirical evidence which seems to suggest that cooperatives tend to be as or more efficient than conventional firms. So, so like one why wouldn't they be expanding? Yeah, well, that's, that's literally the question. And so like the one of the conventional air answers is um, people are less willing to invest in worker cooperatives than they are in conventional firms. So it is very possible um, that right now, and the reason for this is because like it's easier to loan to a firm which has like a, a one given leader as opposed to like a council of leaders. Um, it's part of like an employee culture thing. There's like a whole literature I can point to. Well, here. but if but um, if if it's more efficient, if there's if there's evidence that suggests co-ops are more efficient, why wouldn't there be people dying to invest in them? 
Well, and I think that that's like the, the, the whole argument then is that possibly it isn't more efficient. Possibly it's like slightly less efficient. Um, I don't, we, this is one of those things that's hard to know because we don't have any countries where there are like enormous war, worker cooperatives at scale. Sure. And so is that because of these sort of like cultural or structural factors or is this because they are just less in, uh, less efficient? Um, and so I, I don't fully know the answer to that one. I can mostly just point to the empirical literature which seems to say worker cooperatives work reasonably well. Um, I, the the What's his face? I can, I want to say, I can actually post specifically a study about this, about like one of the, the, the structural limits to why people don't invest in cooperatives, um, which I think is a really interesting article. I can find that in a little okay. bit. Well, I guess uh, just in principle though, like, you know, buying the capitalists want to make as much money as possible. If there was any evidence or even suggestion that there was evidence, they would be more efficient. And I guess it depends on what you mean by efficient, because you might say like, Workplace democracy might be better for people's mental health, but if you're trying to manufacture as much insulin as you can, which is a different problem. Well, so one of the, one of the relevant things is efficiency here usually means they're measuring input versus output. But one of the relevant things that an employer is looking for is usually um, profitability. And so worker cooperatives, because they pay their employees more, are less profitable. They So like literally, how do I put this? It's like, let's say that- Well, a lot of companies firms, pay their employees a lot. Well, they do, but like the, the whole idea is um, it, when they do so and it boosts efficiency, that's like efficiency wages sort of stuff. Right. But let's imagine that we have two companies that are equally efficient. Um, and then in one of those, they pay their workers less Then more profit by necessity goes to the employer. And so um, worker cooperatives are more profitable. Well, but if they pay extent. their. OK, I see what you're saying. Yeah. In a, OK, I see what you're saying. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. So in, in short, the argument is, and this is one of the things that the, like the, 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 the person raises, is that worker cooperatives might be more efficient for the people working within them and possibly just as efficient in terms of economic um, benefits to the society as a whole. But for specifically investors and owners of the firms, they are much less efficient because they don't provide the same dividends or return on investment. Sure. Um, okay. Okay. Let me, because that is a jump off. What do you think about the idea of like... Could the fundamental problems that you're worried about be solved if just everyday people owned more stock in companies? Possibly. Right? Like, because so, isn't, isn't the principle of a, a corporation is the ownership is, you know, it's owned by investors, it's owned by the stockholders. But if, you know, if more people were able to, uh, you know, afford and get access to stock, that would actually solve the problem because it's, you know, they, are, they have ownership. It might not be their company, but it's ownership in a company and they can reap the benefits from that. So and then you eliminate the problem of the, what we were talking about with, you know, the workers in their own firm voting in their own self-interest and not what's better for the purpose of the firm, which is like, you know. Well, so precisely one of the second answers that I wanted to offer, one answer for why firms would choose to operate efficiently is the market forces them to do so. The other answer is because when people have ownership in their firm, they want that firm to do well. Having a product which outsells your competitors does allow you to do well. So even if you imagine that hypothetically a worker was laid off, but say that they were still paid like a stipend for a given period of time, and if they own those shares and they can now work in another company, right, they can keep those shares and just change their job, then they actually ben may benefit well, even if they were laid off, they still might want the company to do well. That's like a whole separate discussion. Um, but I do think that there's a whole argument that worker share ownership um, also seems to lead to like more worker buy-in, more efficiency. Um, sure, but maybe, but I guess I guess my my you know mm -hmm. or my perspective is like when we're talking about capitalism versus socialism, or whatever. On that, it's like this like. All of the, you know, all of the ideas around co-ops, around maybe changing, you know, legal structures, whatever, to fit these different systems. And it's like, if people just bought more stock, if people learn to invest instead of, uh, you know, just keep it in like a bank account or whatever, like, 
that would solve a lot of the problems that you're trying to address, right? Because if people so own, yes if people own no. stock the, in the companies, they're reaping the profit in the form of dividends or whatever, or in the increased value of their stock. So it's like so the, that would be the best thing sorry. for poor, like you know, people who are of lower class or whatever and don't have that much money. Is like, well, if you are investing the money that you do save. So one of the problems with a individual approach to like, hey, what if people just invested more stock is, um, well, there's two ones. There's this whole there's this whole interesting thing in behavioral economics about why some people invest in unrisky versus risky stocks. And so like one of the things that's really interesting to note is that unrisky investments return, say, like a 2% return on investment and stocks return, like, let's say, a 6% return on investment in the United States. And yet people consistently choose the less risky investment. And so the reasons why they seem to do so are, one, a combination of human biases, and two, because they need stable investments because they're poor. And so one of the right. problems- Or they're closer individual... to retirement or something like that. Like older people who yes. are closer to retirement will do fixed income and young people will do no. stocks. And, and, and so it's basically a combination of needing security and of not having the money to invest. And so one of the problems with saying, hey, well, what if more people simply invested is people don't always have that wealth to invest in the first place. People who um, are closer to the poverty line um, are less willing to take risky, um, like not just the poverty line, but people who are poor in general sure. are yeah. less willing to take risky investments because their money could fall out. And then right. unlike someone who has like a million dollars invested and who will on average get that 6% return, if you invest poorly and you lose it all, you've lost a significant chunk of it. Sure. Your- okay. That's... I- that's uh, a good point because the yeah the less money you have the more it's due to the law of large numbers right yeah. yeah more susceptible you are to variation in returns okay that's actually a good point and um, so this is actually one of the arguments if you want an interesting like policy takeaway is this is one of the arguments for a so-called social wealth fund it's rather than having individuals invest you you take you tax their money a little bit and then you socially invest it for them so you're basically forcing them to invest in a way that they can't because they individually can't take on the risk but if you pool all of their money mm-hmm. that now that pool of money can take that risk well that's what so an this ETF is, the idea. is right an index fund is basically that's a, it the ETF is that from like the the market side the right. social wealth fund is from like what if society owned that the the investment as it were um, well couldn't this, so like, couldn't, couldn't they just buy the ETFs so theoretically, they could, and possibly that would be res- less risky. The whole um, the whole issue then is that if the ETF does drop, then it really hurts the individual person because now their wealth is totally dropped. But if that wealth is pooled in society, again, in something like if you want to look at like Norway's social wealth fund or Alaska's permanent fund, these are so-called SWFs or social wealth funds. Norway uh, social wealth fund. Yeah, and I'll send you. Yeah, yeah I'll I'm, get the I'm, go. I was writing notes, and yeah, we, I can look, look at this afterwards. Social wealth fund. Okay. Sure. <laughs> um, as part of his. Uh, Family fun pack, Matt Brunig, who is a socialist, has argued that we should have a social wealth fund in, the, in America. One of the basic benefits is this idea that it's, it's a shared investment fund. So like the, the, whole, the whole idea that I was trying to say with like, so if, if, if someone with a billion dollars invests and on average their stocks perform 7%, but in one year they perform like minus 10% and the next year they perform plus 20%, they'll do fine. But this isn't the case for people who are closer to like the, the poverty line. Right. Um, so there's two main things like from a mathematical perspective that, that matter here. One is like how much absolutely your wealth dips and two is like in terms of volatility also. Um, and then two is um, how much, how many, how diverse your investment portfolio is. The more money someone has, theoretically, the more diverse their portfolio can be. Mm-hmm. Um, also, as you noted, there's been the rise of stuff like ETFs, which some right, of which I think counter, like, which right, which kind of eliminates that that issue to some degree. Yes, and interestingly, some have actually argued that <laughs> um, Vanguard and BlackRock are already doing the the socialized ownership of the means of production because de facto they own everything. Yeah, right. Um, there's this. To go on a total tangent um, to, to what we were talking about, there's this really tangents. neat article which demonstrates that I think it's, um, I want to say it's 
it's like 700 firms own 40% of international like firms and like a thousand firms own like 80% of all international firms. Sure. And so there's in this terms huge of stock, stock ownership, right? Yes. Yeah. Stock ownership. Sure. Um, and it includes like indirect stock ownership. So like, let's say you own 10% of a company, which in turn owns 10% of a company. Well, actually now you own 1% of that company sort of mm-hmm. thing. Um, and so that's not quite how the math works, but I'm, that, the, the point, I guess, the is still yeah. there. Um, I can send that article. It's a really neat one about the modern like concentration of um, economics. So in short, that some people have argued that's a huge problem, actually, because that might reduce competition. Because if you own all of the firms, you don't actually want them to compete on price. If you own both firm A and it's only competitor firm B, you don't want them to lower prices. You are basically a monopolist, uh, which is something that this is like Sure. Yeah, well, I get in like, it's like... Because also like Vanguard and when people say like Vanguard owns the company, it's like, well, Vanguard manages your retirement portfolio. So technically you own it. It's your money, but it's it's under Vanguard's balance sheet, right? So I might have a million dollars in Vanguard or whatever, but it'll show up as Vanguard owning a million dollars, but it's really – Mine. So it's, it's technically your money in Vanguard, but I guess yeah. the way that they're thinking about this is um, so. So the, the the report that I was looking at, um, not the, the, it got a lot of attention back. I think in like 2011 or something. It noted that right now most of these investors aren't very active investors. They don't actively involve themselves in trying to get firms to not compete. But there was this there's this risk, and I guess we don't know to what degree it is going on um, of that that they will force firms not to compete. So even though Vanguard is using your money to own those firms, it is ultimately in both Vanguard and I suppose to some degree your interest. Um, if you are an investor in Vanguard, that those firms not compete. But the problem is, from a societal perspective, it is not to your interest that firms don't compete based on price because you do want right. lower prices. Right. Um, so this is interestingly, this is actually considered like a social problem to some degree. Like um, one of the arguments for having instead of being Vanguard being like a social wealth fund, a, a publicly owned entity is presumably this publicly owned entity could still allow competition because it wouldn't have those profit incentives. It would have a social incentive to benefit everyone. And so you could simply set it up such that the social wealth fund didn't try to reduce competition in a way that firms do have an incentive to do so. Um, sure. I don't know if that, that all made sense, but I can. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I, and your point, like we are, like Vanguard is already like more or less a social wealth fund. I guess so. Like, I mean, my broader. It's a question, privately owned social wealth fund. Is the other difference? It's a. It's not a social wealth fund. It's just right a wealth fund. to whoever's to whoever's <laughs> in it. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Um, you know, because like one of the things that I am, from like a policy perspective, um, uh, a big believer. I got in the numbers, by the way. 147 firms control 40% of the wealth held by 43,000 transnational corporations. 730 firms own 80% of it. Um, and it's including all that indirect sure. ownership as and well. And those are the investment firms. Those are the capital. Yeah, it's, it's basically all, like if you trace it all back, all of those firms are in New York and London. <laughs> Almost right. all of them. And, but but yeah. again, those are... It's be, it's distributed amongst all of the yes. people whose investments are in them, right? So yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's not like big sneaky Vanguard yeah. is doing it. Like tech, it's, a, it's a wealth management fund. Yeah. Um, it's... Yeah. Yes. Well, yes. I was going to ask, like, okay, so I'm a, I'm a big believer in universal basic income. I think like mm-hmm. a lot of I think, you know. My broad perspective is the government is very inefficient when it comes to planning. When it comes to right, re- mm-hmm. like, it needs to regulate, but it like it it. The best thing that government can be is efficient rather than like comprehensive in terms of regulating. Everything. I'd rather have government do one really good thing, which could be like cut people checks every month or whatever in a universal basic income format. Then try and make the rules and, tr- and plan around it and stuff. Um, I guess what what like in your model, mm-hmm. what like because you talk about social welfare fund, um, sort of the workplace democracy co-op thing. What mm-hmm. laws or like legal conditions do you what advocate for or believe are required to get this kind of market socialist model up and running? Because for me, it sounds like 
a lot of what you believe just could exist within the capitalist frame, the current whatever capitalist, whatever you want to call it, current framework, and just get implemented that way. And then maybe like universal-based income, you address those kind of people at the bottom don't have wealth to invest in. So the social wealth fund, I think, pretty clearly does would require a shift. It would be like, um, say the government increases everyone's taxes by 3% and it invests those taxes every year into the social wealth fund. Um, So the analogy is in Norway, basically what they do is they they have oil there. So they got lucky. Um, In Alaska, the reason they have a social wealth fund is they have oil there. They got lucky. Um, Is is the Alaskan social wealth fund fund the same as the dividend that Andrew Yang talks about? Um, I believe the social, the Alaska permanent fund does pay dividends. I don't know as much about that as okay. um, like the general concept of it. So sure. I can't speak to that in particular, okay. but I know it does pay dividends. And I, I want to say that was like in the Simpsons movie. I think I remember watching that a long time ago sure. where they pay everyone like a thousand dollars to live in Alaska. Okay. Um, uh, so that fundamentally I, I do, I do want to actually agree that there is a, a unity of this idea of a social wealth fund and the universal basic income that you, you have social ownership and you use that ownership to pay dividends to everyone. Um, so I don't think that those are those are at odds. The, the main way that you'd have to get to a social wealth fund is raising the wealth to buy it in the first place. So one of the ways I think about this would be like if in social security, instead of just transferring the funds today from like someone who owns money today gets taxed and it goes to someone who's old, it would be as if you took money from someone who has money today, you invest it in this big government investment fund like Norway does with their social wealth fund. Um, and then you pay dividends from that to say the elderly, to say the universal basic income. Recipients. Sure. Can I ask who, who decides what the social wealth fund invests in? Uh, I mean, ultimately, it would be the managers of the SWF. And ideally, some have argued that you probably want a bunch of SWF so that there's like diversity. And if one really fucks up, it doesn't fuck almost the whole like, system. Almost too like much, a market but... of them, which is, isn't that, uh, basically, the, isn't it's, that the Vanguard it's a, model? It's a market, but a publicly owned market. And so one of the, the main arguments is that the, the difference there is that the incentives of the public market are solely to return higher investment um, to like the, the state ultimately and then back to the people. Um, but the difference there is that the private investors um, have this anti-competitive interest and this um, basically uh, if you're the social wealth fund, you aren't interested in seeing like price gouging. But if you're the private social wealth fund, you are interested in seeing price gouging. Because like price or gouging through means collusion, more right? Like you're talking about not, like firms not competing, right? Yes. Okay, and but so then couldn't fear. you just make the case that if you just – if the government properly enforced like anti-collusion and antitrust laws – which I agree they don't so, do a good job of. And I think, in my opinion, the tech companies are like specifically now are one example of yeah. that. I, I guess, so one of the ideas is it, there's enforcement and then the lack of need of enforcement. Sometimes it is, how do I do this? Um, in, in crime, for example, there's this idea that police are like enforcement and they can sometimes pre- like directly prevent crimes. Like a police sees a robbery and goes over and prevents it or something. Police also can prevent crimes from even having to have been started in the first place. So we have evidence that police just being in an area stops people from mm-hmm. doing the crime because they know that they won't be successful. That's, right. That's why restaurants so, will give them like free donuts or free coffee if they just hang around there. Liter- like literally, yes, that is part of the reason why. And so there's this related idea that, um, yes, it could be that the government could allow these private wealth funds and then really, really enforce anti-collusion, really, really enforce um, antitrust laws. But it's also possible that you wouldn't even need that in the first place if the institutions were such that you didn't need to worry about that collusion as much. You didn't need sure, to worry about the antitrust yeah. as much. Okay, but then uh, for the social welfare fund, you said it is in the interest of the fund to get a return for people in the state, right? Like ultimately, yes. Ultimate, it, okay, so then couldn't that be an example of stifling like innovation? Like what if they choose to invest in something that the private sector would choose and say, hey, there's a huge potential return for this new technology in the private sector, but the social welfare fund wouldn't invest in that because... 
we're, we're looking for a low risk return to the people, to the state. There's actually, so um, as far as I'm aware, I, I, I haven't read the Brunig um, Social Wealth Fund article in a while. Um, so I can't speak to this. I'm pretty sure that like in Norway, for example, the Social Wealth Fund invests reasonably equivalently to private investors. Um, so like reasonable amounts of risk as equivalent to like private investors, mm -hmm. reasonable like types of diversification as private investors. So it's not that different, I guess is what, one of the things I'm trying to, to bring up. But um, if you want a book on this, um, not directly, but about the general idea, it would be um, Mariana Matsukudo, The Entrepreneurial State. One of the arguments that she raises is um, basically the state has a much better track, invest, uh, track of investing in really transformational and long-term technologies than private investors do. And the argument that she raises is the state can be looking for return on investment 50 years down the line because the state is pretty sure it's going to be there 50 sure. years down the line. Sure, yeah, and I think one of, the, and one of the biggest problems I think in capitalism, you know, broadly speaking, is we, we like we, they companies look at things in terms of quarterly reports we're on quarterly mm -hmm. investment returns and a company you know you have to be a very big and very well put together company to be able to say yeah we're going to put investments in that we expect to pay out 20 years from now yeah right because <laughs> investors don't want 20 year returns because a lot of them will be retired and you know or are retired. Yeah, so some of them won't be investing anymore right in so years. that right. that that is a that is a um and this is something that actually jordan pearson like points out specifically it's like you know, people in the 15th century would start a cathedral and it wouldn't get, you know, built for 150 built years. For 100 years right. or something. Like literally past yeah. their lifetime. And now it's like we're looking on quarterly reports. It's like that there's, is a there's big actually a term problem for this. with that. It is, it is, I think even Elizabeth Warren mentioned this, it is literally called short-termism um, yeah. to describe that there's sure. been this hyper-focus on short-term returns. Um, and as a result, uh, there's this term called basic science. Um there's this idea that there's this pipeline from like very basic research up to like market development. And you're like actually putting the market out, like the product out there on the market. And um, one of the things that Matsukudo notes is the further back you go in the pipeline, the harder and harder it is to get private investment for something. Mm. Um, I think there's this ratio that like of investments into basic science, it fails like 80, 90% of the time, something along those lines. Um, so you're talking about stuff like um, like in NASA, they invested in lasers, um, which were like very basic science at the time. And now it's led to like incredible um, effects uh, from that. Um, they invested in like geosynchronous orbit and like and satellites and so on. And now 50 years down the line, we're talking through a satellite. I'm pretty right, sure. Right, right, right. Um, sure. And the idea, you know, like government uh, is the main source of grants for like university research, right? I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's private research too, but like, yeah, exact, like to your point, like, you know, research yeah. is not always going to have a material economic effect right away. So there's not a huge private incentive to do that. And that's the whole, like, this is actually some of the second argument that I was raising. It, there's this externality. Um, so research has a positive externality, which firms don't get. So basically, if you invent a really cool laser, right. Unless you get a then you get to sell it for 10 years. But it will also benefit the rest of society for a million years, right. basically. Right. And you only get that benefit if you've got the copyright and if you can sell it. But it enormously benefits society to have better research. And there's also, um, and this is talked about, oh, what the fuck is its name? There's this, there's this, um, like cyclic effects, basically, where the more research you do, the more research other people can do because you've invented the computer and now it's easier to do other research. Well, now that it's easier to do other research, more mm -hmm. research is done and more research being done sure, means more research feedback will be done. Loop. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. And so in short, it's not just an externality, but it's like a nonlinear externality, right. um, which is the, the, the problem. Um, so I, all this is to say, I, there was this one article that someone actually sent me yesterday, which I haven't read, so I can't, <laughs> I can't speak to whether it's good sure. or not. But the, the title of it is from AssetNews.com, which is that apparently sovereign wealth funds are doing a lot of investment in innovation and in investment mm -hmm. in um, 
like research and development, sure. which I think is very interesting. And it suggests one of the roles of the SWF is investing in areas that private markets don't invest in, which can be good and it can be bad. I'm not trying to say that SWFs are going to be perfect. It's more just that because they are socially determined, they can have better functions than private wealth funds. Um, the two I suggested here are in short, uh, possibly better investment in research and possibly better um, underinvestment in like collusion and underinvestment in um, like price gouging sort of stuff. Sure. I would imagine the same incentives for corruption still exist as in the government. You know, like if, if someone yes. is managing the, whoever the government managers of the SWF are, it's like, I'm sure they are going to get influenced by whatever big money you know, oh, yeah, we're I, investing I, in a lot. You could say, like, we're investing in the long-term good of the state in this innovation. It's this company, and they're just yeah. doing jack shit with it. You know what I mean? So, this goes back to the principle of, like, always good to look at an individual lens because the, the incentives to commit corruption are, on the, are at the individual level always. They, ult, they ultimately, you know, go down to that. And that's which is why, why there's that distinction between, like, government versus private solutions. It's like... You're still dealing with people, so a lot of it, you know, I get it. And in one principle, of the, you are you, you, everything you say is like, you know, I, I agree with it. It's 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 just it's, it's application kind of is different than principle. Yes, right. Uh, yes, and then it's a matter of semantics because um, it's like, well, is it is it market socialism? Is it democratic capitalism? Is it super capitalism? It's like you know, well, we're just kind of. I'm not. <laughs> I like the I, super capitalism term. Well, right, and it's kind of like I'm I'm most interested in how do we all align on the same semantics so we're all fighting for the same thing. You know what I mean? That's kind of my well, gist. And so I guess I would just note I don't consider any of these things to be like a binary. Like at some point, now that your social wealth fund owns precisely fifty point oh one percent of the economy, yeah. right? Now it's socialism or something. Sure. Right. I think all of these things are great. Um, yes. And I, I think if you want a paradox that's relevant, it's called the Sorte's paradox. At what point you, you drop like a lump of sand and a lump of sand and a lump of sand? How many lumps of sand does it have to be to become a heap, to become yes, a pile? Right, right, right. Um, and so I don't, I don't think that there's this hard line at suddenly which I'm like, yes, it's socialism now. It's just as you get closer to it, I think that it comes closer to my ideals. Okay. Um, so can I ask? The semantic you, sort of argument. What? So like, if someone came up with the term democratic capitalism, mm -hmm. would you have a problem with that if it if it had the same principles? Like, is there a re this is and this is. This is like a separate conversation we're having yeah. now, but um, like, like, because in my opinion, I think the word again, socialism has a lot of obviously negative context. Just like the word, you know, capitalism, whatever, has a lot of negative context. So it's like, you know, how important is it that you're, you know, using the language of socialism versus? Democratic capitalism versus whatever. I think the main reason I use the term socialist is related to the third thing I brought up, which is this idea of class compression or class abolition. So, um, so like modern social democracy and modern like super capitalism and other like democratic capitalism mostly focus on redistribution of resources and right. um, kind of trying to mitigate inequality, but they aren't focused on necessarily eliminating class differences. And so generally socialists seem to genuinely, like, like, like myself, basically want to eliminate um, a class of people who have fundamentally different incentives than other people. And so... Um, to, to explain that a little bit. I know we're pivoting to the third one, but... Sure. Um, and I'm fine with this conversation going wherever. I'm interested in whatever it goes. The, so, like, if you look at the main source of wealth, like, how do people accumulate wealth? If you're in the bottom 98%, the number one source for your wealth is your labor income. Um, but there's this point at which um, you people have enough wealth that their wealth income is now higher than their labor income. And so yes. the accumulation of wealth is now sort of it becomes increasingly cyclical, where you have more wealth, yes. you use that to get dividends. more wealth, and you use that to Once you yes. get a fixed amount of income, you can just live off the dividends and never do anything. Basically, yes. Um, and so it's this idea that um, the closer someone is to having enough wealth 
that they are in the, that was like sort of like um, cyclical self-investment, like wealth accumulation side of things, the closer they are to what we would call capitalist. If you want to use the Marxian term, it's money capitalist um, because they don't even necessarily directly own anything. Bill Gates doesn't own Microsoft. He has like 1% of his shares, but he has an incredible amount of money because he has so many shares in general. Um, it's not necessarily about just like ownership of firms. It's just about like having a huge amount of wealth. And the idea is that their incentives are fundamentally somewhat different than yours. Their incentives are getting that higher return on investment, that higher dividend, and not necessarily on having like say, um, fundamentally, their incentive is to some degree to have low worker wages. They would like people to be paid less because that means more profit for them. Um, and in contrast, most people, like the vast majority of people, would like higher worker wages because that means more income in their lives. And so sure, short, I wouldn't say that their fundamental incentive is lower wages because if their lower wages equates to less efficiency or profit, their fundamental it's, it's, Motivation is yeah. profit, and that might mean higher wages to hire better. It people. might. No, no, no. So I, that, sorry. So you're totally correct. The, the claim is not that capitalists always want lower wages. It's that they want as low wages as efficient is the way to yes. think about it. Yes. And now that might imply that socialists want higher wages than efficient. In general, uh, it seems like also investors tend to think that low wages good and, and efficient. And it seems to think that like lefty people think that higher wages are efficient, in part because um, it's this sort of externality problem coming up yet again. So for an investor, they want the private firm to return a high dividend to them, but they aren't necessarily thinking about the social effects of high wages. So one of the ideas is that like higher wages, um, how do I, so like one of the things that we know is that inequality reduces economic growth. There's a huge number of studies that can mm -hmm. show this. There's this sure. one, I can show this one meta study. Uh, crime too, Gini coefficient, right? It's like the number, yes, one, it has like the number one predictor of crime is wealth inequality. Yes. And so basically, there are these, there's these social effects of an unequal society and of a society where poverty is rampant. We have, there's literally whole studies showing that poverty like negatively affects brain growth. Poverty literally affects your ability to have like higher level cognitive function. Sure. Um, and isn't so it like, isn't it like people who have like bills or something to pay, like they score less on IQ tests, like than they I, would otherwise? I could, I could, I wouldn't doubt it at all. Yeah. Um, I haven't read that one, so I can't vouch right. for it. But in short, um, there's a positive externality to having people not be in poverty, and there's a positive externality to lower inequality. But an investor doesn't see that directly anyway. Mm -hmm. They don't see, yeah. hey, I paid people excessively at Walmart, right? So now Walmart is 2% less efficient, but society as a whole is now 3% more efficient. Isn't right, and, and you could even make the point like mm -hmm. it, Walmart is 2% less efficient now, but in the long mm -hmm. run, because society yes. is, you know, what's the uh, rising tides lift all boats, whatever. It's like, you can make, the, <laughs> can you make that argument for Walmart. It's like. You know, fuck Walmart for five years, and then twenty years from now, it's going to actually be better. Walmart will be even better. But because, well, like you were saying, the investors have a short-term um, outlook on things, and or or maximum like ten to fifteen years. So yes. like that's a real problem, and that's actually what you call that. What was it? Short-terminism. So was... short-terminism is, I think, the term that a few financial like people, and I think Elizabeth Warren called it that. But um, short it, it's I think it's pretty widely used. Okay, I like that. Um. Well, it, it, it's twofold. One is that there's short-termism, and then there's also the externality problem. It's that you invest only in Walmart. You aren't invested in literally everything in society, unless I suppose everything you hold is like an ETF, which also- Right, which is like, quite yeah. common though, which is kind of a, that's been the trend over the past 20 years. People have been moving Well, and the interesting in thing ETFs. then, the interesting thing then is that now these ETFs increasingly come to resemble these social wealth funds. And so right. like the, that, that's precisely actually back to the first point. Exactly. Now, if the investor is simply investing in an ETF, what is different between them having that wealth and private individuals having that wealth? If the only decision, so how do I put it like this? Classically, the argument for having the rich people, especially back in like the 1800s, was like, well, the poor people are stupid and they don't know how to invest well. And I know that's very crass and crude, but like the in short argument is the people who are rich, um, 
the two terms people would use, they have a they have a long time preference. They prefer to invest now and save now, and that in turn make, uh, accumulates wealth, and that leads to capital accumulation, and in turn benefits everyone. It benefits the poor because now there's more factories and cheaper goods, mm -hmm. and so everyone is better off. Right. Um, but um, now, if most of the investment in the world is just into these like general funds of the entirety of society, there's no particular benefit of having that individual have that control of wealth. Oh yeah, no the, I, the, I, yeah. like, like I, I forget which book it was. I've seen it in a couple places now. There is a big argument to be made that like 80% of people on Wall Street are completely worthless. Like they don't do any, <laughs> they don't add value. It's like, I think it's like regularly you'll see statistics, ETF market funds, like the automatic indexed ones outcompete mm -hmm individual investors like 80% of the time, right? Yeah. And like, the, and who knows what the 20% are just got lucky or something like that. So it's like the, the idea that there is so, there is so much like, I don't know what you'd call it, institutional middlemen mm -hmm. that is just a product of, well, we've had Wall Street for 50 years and you know. And so they're how, just there because, yeah. Right, because but I can, I can download like, a, right, I can, right, I can download a stock trading app on my phone, which I do, and I can buy an ETF and I have that like, that's yeah. it. I've just eliminated, you know, however many offices on Wall Street. So it's like maybe and, and, we should fundamentally, push that model. The fundamental idea is let's say that the only thing Bill Gates was invested in was an ETF, just one ETF or something. There's no fundamental difference between that ETF being like a social wealth fund and paying out dividends to everyone and um, that being a private wealth fund, which Bill Gates has invested into, except for where the money goes at the end of it. So the difference is in like a social wealth fund, presumably the distribution of income is reasonably equitable. It goes to virtually everyone. But in the Bill Gates or the current model, that distribution disproportionately goes back to the extremely wealthy. And so this gets back into the whole argument about inequality, that probably mm -hmm. if someone isn't providing additional benefit to the economy just by investing in a generic investment fund, if they aren't choosing well what investments to invest into, there's little reason to believe that giving them that wealth is benefiting the economy. Um, and so then sure. it relates to very simple and very common economic ideas of what's called like marginal utility of income. Mm -hmm. That a dollar to a person earning twenty thousand dollars is worth a whole lot more yes, than a dollar right, to someone earning a million dollars. Right, right, right. Because you got to uh, pay for rent and food and shit, and you, you know you're only going to eat so much food, even if it is more expensive. Yes, it's um, that there's there's a really neat stat, and I think um, uh, Joseph Stiglitz uh, talks about this a little bit, and a lot of people talk about it. Consumption inequality is much lower than is like income inequality, which is lower than again, the, but then wealth inequality. The the top I want to say it's the top five percent consume ten percent of consumption, but they own like fifty percent of the wealth, something along those lines. Sure. And so there's like it's not proportionate in short. I was going to ask, going back to the social welfare fund, mm -hmm. what happens if the social welfare fund loses money? So part how of the suggestion is like, yeah, how does that get mitigated? I so the, the two suggestions are, um, one, there should be multiple social wealth funds. So um, is that ideally, if you have a large country like the United States that can afford to have really big investment funds with the same sort of economy of scale that you get from, say, like Vanguard or BlackRock, well, now you've just got social wealth fund one and social wealth fund two. You know, you, you've got like the Patriot Fund and the Freedom Fund sure, and like right. the but, America But that fund. doesn't ensure against economy-wide macro, like, a, you know, 2008, how, and you know, recession. The answer to how you solve that is fundamentally very similar to like how um, – Keynesians and post-Keynesians have answered economic crises in general. Just print more money? That no, <laughs> <laughs> that's more of the MMT people. Yeah, right, yeah. right. Um, in short, it's that when the economy screws up, um, you want to have had money in the bank that now you can spend during the, the bad period. The classic mm. Keynesian model is save during the good times and spend during the bad times. And um, part of the uh, – there's a whole discussion there about like the utility of deficit spending versus debt and like so on. And we don't need to get into that. Yeah, but in I short, the argument is – when the economy goes down, this is when the time when the state itself proper can use fiscal policy. Um, now, there is a problem if you if you directly link dividends to social wealth fund performance. Um, 
are you familiar with the terms like counter-cyclical versus pro-cyclical? Uh, I can infer the meaning, but go ahead. Not So just, not just for the benefit of the viewers. Yeah, um, sure. Yes. Counter-cyclical would mean something which tends to reduce the size of economic depressions and like growths. So imagine that you have this like long-term growth line of say 2%. And if you have a, a highly cyclical economy, they would have frequent shifts from let's say like, I don't know, 5% to 1% and on and on and on, these big cycles. Um, and if you have like a very weak cyclical economy, it would be like, you know, maybe it goes up to 2.2% and down to like 1.9%, but it generally stays near the trend line. And so generally, a lot of economists tend to think that less cyclicality, good, because it leads to less of what you're talking about, where one year everything loses money and the next year it makes a ton of money. Um, And that's for a variety of reasons that are somewhat outside the context of the discussion. Um, So one problem is that if you have social wealth fund and you pay UBI with dividends from social wealth fund, that is a pro-cyclical policy because what happens is, one, social wealth fund loses money. Two, dividends go down. Three, people have less money. Now people have less money, they buy less things. Four, so economy go down more. It's it's leading into the economic cycle where less money means less production, means less money, means less production. So it's pro-cyclical, uh, and that's bad. Um, so fundamentally, the reason why I say it's a fiscal policy thing is you need something which isn't tied to the cycle of the economy, um, which can just pump up the markets. And that is like the classic role of fiscal Keynesianism. Um, sure. So I don't- Well, and, and like, yeah. again, I-, I am fully set on universal basic income or a negative income tax in some format that I guess isn't necessarily tied to a social welfare fund, right? Like, I mean, like, and then that would avoid that problem. <laughs> I right. So I guess, I mean, so what, I mean, what is your perspective on universal basic income? I generally would prefer a, a, a fixed, um, I would prefer that the state just paid it. And then the way that the social wealth fund would work is, um, Paid, Are you familiar you're with like paid universal basic income? The state paid the universal basic income. Yes. So so UBI. sorry, I'll, I'll walk it through. So sure. one, state pays UBI, and that is just like a fixed income. Maybe say inflation adjusted, right? It's just like you get a thousand dollars a month, and that's it. The state will do it no matter what. It yeah. is utterly reliable, and it doesn't go up or down with uh, right. And, it, and, it, and it's not. It's very yes. easy to do from a technological perspective, and it doesn't. It is not, incredibly easy for the government to send out right. checks, it, which eliminates a lot of the inefficiency problem that is kind of main stay of the government. It's like. We don't have to worry about that so much, but yeah, go ahead. So um, the government does that. And then two, the social wealth fund is basically just an asset the government owns. I know that's a weird way to think about it, but it's basically that it, the government owns the social wealth fund, that wealth fund returns money to the government, and then it just goes into the general fund of the government's money. Um, that would be the simplest model. Um, and I think it would avoid some of these counter-cyclical, I'm sorry, the, some of these pro-cyclical effects. It would be sure. le- it would be counter-cyclical, if anything. Sure. And that social wealth wealth fund would be invested in private equity, right? In private companies? Uh, presumably, yes. I mean, yes. Okay. So then at what point, I guess, well, then you get into government. What happens if government owns a certain percentage of a company or something like that? Well, and so one of the things that's really interesting is... Um, like, I mean, Norway, I think their social wealth fund is like 70% of the size of the Norwegian economy at this point. Um, it's like an incredibly large social wealth fund. It's one of the few countries in the world which has seen an increasing proportion of uh, wealth owned by the state. Um, and it doesn't seem like it's reached this point at which like now the markets are just failing or something. Um, well, because... you, could see, well uh, you could see a repeat of Venezuela, right? Because isn't that what Venezuela was doing? It, they didn't take into account what happens when oil prices drop? And isn't, isn't a big part of, is it Norway's you... uh, social wealth fund is in the oil? So God um, forbid oil yeah. drops, and then suddenly we're going to have a, di- a different discussion on the viability of it. <laughs> well, oil did drop. And so I, I think you can literally right. even see it in, in, yeah. in Norway's GDP. Um, I'm pretty sure at the same time that Venezuela's GDP went down like by a third, um, Norway's GDP went down by, I want to say, like 5% or something. Um, that's partly just because Norway is incredibly richer than Right, Venezuela. it's not as dependent. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other thing that they did is 
there, we can have a whole discussion about like the particular failings of Venezuela. In short, the simplest one is hyperinflation. They just print. They were like, hey, we have a debt, and MMT, it's in, baby. Like, MMT. It's it's basically hyper MMT, yeah. and the MMTers would say, you know, we don't support inflation without end. Um, so they would they would disagree that what Venezuela. So you are not an end. MMT person, right? Uh, no, I think okay, that I'm glad. there's this there's this great line from No Opinion, um, who is like a I can go link that blog post. Um, no opinion. I, I think it's it's a general line, but I've heard it from Noah. Um, in short, it's that any good policy proposal from MMT is virtually identical to something that a post-Keynesian would say, but using weird terminology. Um, <laughs> it's that instead of saying nice. like, "Hey, we should just we should spend we should deficit spend during recessions," which is what Keynesians would say, they would say we should print more money to pay for things during a recession, and then we should tax more to reduce inflation. And so it's just a different way of saying the exact same thing um, yeah. using their terminology. Yeah. Um, So I guess to return to the basic idea, um, so the the government owning things through a social wealth fund could lead to efficiency problems, which I think is what you were trying to get to. Mm -hmm. um, if or the government, corruption if, problems or any number. Or corruption, yes. Um, the fundamental ways that you try to reduce that are you have a diversity of social wealth funds. So now the social wealth funds are in fact competing with each other to some degree. It's akin to like a publicly owned market would be the way that I think about it, where all of the firms are public corporations and they're competing with each other, but they all pay dividends to the government. Um, so that should, if we think that markets tend to reduce corruption, this should tend to reduce corruption. Um, um, and then two is you would want to institutionally have these for these like social wealth funds be unable to try and intervene in the market itself. You would want them to be unable to try and collude, unable to try and mm -hmm. um, interfere. And so it's the same problem as like back BlackRock interfere. There can always be like backroom stuff. You can always find a way around these sort of regulations. It's just trying to make it harder. And so the, the idea is it is probably easier for a state-owned corporation where every employee there is, is part of like you know, they're all a government employee and everything they say can be monitored. Mm -hmm. It's probably a little bit easier to reduce the risk of corruption and collusion there than in like BlackRock where everyone's a private citizen. Sure. Um, so I I know that sounds a little bit like hell for the managers of the financial <laughs> funds, but probably it's worth it for- Well, I, I, like I said, fuck the, my, the financial, the Wall Street people who just fucking sit there and lose yeah. out to ETS and all that. Um, okay, I, I, uh, I can go for what, 15, 20 minutes more? You got time or- I, I don't have any plans today. So. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah, I got to watch the Bears get um, destroyed. Um, <laughs> what was I going to say? Okay, so I was going to have a couple uh, just kind of this, this lightning round question type things, but it's kind of cheap sure. because these might be stupid questions. Profit is theft. Is that stupid or is, do you buy that? Uh, I think that it's... I don't like the the statements that like taxation is theft or profit is theft because as like a morally I'm more of yeah you can say like technically taxation is theft it's like okay yes and so like as a utilitarian I would say if taxation is theft it's justified theft and sure so, so to some degree you could say if profit is theft then capitalists would think that it's justified theft do you and think so profit is exploiting work do you think people get rich by ex the primary way that people like Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates get rich is through exploitation that's the AOC position. She says, what did she and, say? You don't make a billion dollars, you take a billion dollars. Do you think that's fair? I or? think that I would give it less moral loading. I would say that fundamentally the way people get rich is they have wealth and it just accumulates more wealth. And the reason that that wealth accumulates is because um, the workers are not being paid sufficiently their dividends of that wealth. Um, so the, the, the dividends of wealth returns are not equally distributed enough. And so I would say there's some exploitation, but I, I just don't think it's useful to put it in this sure. like, and, big greedy capitalist perspective. Yeah, and... and that's, it's like a structural thing. Not yeah, a, and I would say is, I'm guessing you're making a. a oh, you gonna say something? 
Oh, I was just I was just thinking of a Marx quote. It's like it's just, so there's um and I know I don't I'm not like as I said I'm a revisionist Marxian if anything. Um, there's this quote from Marx which I quite like and I promise it's not too long. Um, in short, he's talking about child labor. He says, "Why do all of the capitalist firms in the cotton spinning industry in like London? Why do they all use child labor? Is it because they're greedy?" And he says the answer is obviously no, because any one of them which tries to use adult workers would have to pay its workers more. Its cotton would either cost more or they'd have less profits, and so they'd lose out. They'd either leave the market or they wouldn't be making as much money, and so they'd stop. And so they're forced to use child labor because of competition. Which, and he's not trying to say competition. I, I think Marx to some degree just hates markets. So I think he is trying to say a really dumb point here. Yeah. But the idea is that markets can force firms to do things both good and bad, not because of their individual decisions. It's not because big greedy Scrooge likes to see his children working. He's doing it because he has to. And so right. um, Marx suggests, and this is like the whole point of like externality discussions and regulation discussions, you can change the market. So now all of the firms are forced by state law, so for example, to use adult workers. And so now they can't use child workers. Now they have to compete using adult right. workers. Um, so I know, I, in short, I'm trying to say it's not greed, it's not personal foibles, it might be institutional right. failures though. So do you think it's a mistake when people say things like, like having billionaires is immoral or profitless? Like, because when I hear, when I see online, I hear the discussions and I see, you know, what's his name, Hassan or whatever, like mm -hmm. unironically be like, profit is theft. It's like, dude, you are just, I, you are, you are making it more difficult to get the things that you want done because people hear that and go, this guy's obviously an idiot, you know? So it's like, so. I would actually, I would say I hate the line profit is theft, but I do actually like the line that billionaires are a policy failure because that's actually my whole point. I don't want to focus on individual exploitation or think Jeff Bezos is some greedy bloodsucker or something. Sure. Policy is the his, reason why Jeff Bezos Because his personal so incentives are just reasonably yes. set up that he does what he does. And the question is, yeah, it's yes. like- it, It's basically the it, structures of the economy. Incentives. Yes, it's the structure of the economy is the reason Jeff Bezos is there. Jeff right. Bezos isn't there because he's some big, bad, evil meanie. He's there because he played his cards well in the system as it is. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, to me, policy failure is actually the way to, to phrase it. It's to sure. think about these sorts of things because we can look at other countries, like most of the European social democracies are substantially more equal on these dimensions. It is a policy choice we made, particularly in the 80s and 90s, to allow increased inequality. Okay. Um, so it's therefore also yeah. a policy choice we can unmake, as it were. Okay, so on the Jeff Bezos thing, because I did uh, a video a, a little bit about this. So I guess my issue with people say Jeff Bezos has all this, you know, he's, t he's at what, mm -hmm. 150 billion or something like that. It's like yeah. comparing private ownership to, let's say, uh, state ownership or whatever. It's mm -hmm. like, this, and this is the example I used. You have an Amazon warehouse, right? You have, and let's say there's a $50 million conveyor belt system. Mm -hmm. Jeff Bezos's name is on that conveyor belt system, right? He owns that asset, but he doesn't. It's like, is it really Jeff Bezos's? It's like not really, because what is he going to go like? He's not going to use that. It's his. He name can't liquidate on. it. Yeah. Right. Or 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 if he does liquidate it, he loses out more money in the long run or whatever. Yes. So when like, and this is much. This is not a specific critique to Jeff Bezos, or you know, this is just an example to make a broader point. It's like, I don't necessarily see private ownership on the part of billionaires that big of a problem if it is the case. Well, it is a problem if it's if if you know poor people are starving and shit and we're not doing anything about mm -hmm. it. That's a problem. That's but that's a separate thing. The idea that like like I'm okay in a society that has billionaires because if Jeff Bezos's name is on a Amazon warehouse, it's like whether or not Jeff Bezos owns it or whether the state owns it, it's like who cares? Because what all that matters is people is 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 that wealth being used? Because the people that are extracting the actual utility from the wealth are the people ordering from Amazon. So really, Je I mean, Jeff Bezos owns that wealth, but the people who are benefiting from the wealth 
are the people ordering goods, right? That goes on so the guess the, system and they get it faster in two days versus one day and then they can... The way I'd put it like this is, let's imagine that we hypothetically, tomorrow we nationalize Amazon uh, and nothing changes. Let's imagine the government is equivalently efficient and inefficient as Jeff Bezos, right? Like um, they, they literally clone Jeff Bezos. They've aged him up. He's <laughs> yeah. the exact same person, but now yes. he's a state employee, right? Yes. Um, so the fundamental difference, I think, is... Um, if you want a book to read about this, which is literally about this, and it's light economic reading, it's not deep by any means, it's called The People's Republic of Walmart. Um, it's, it's also related to this general idea of the economic calculation um, problem. Um, the, the, the idea is not that um, we should be mad about like inefficiency of like the private firms. The idea is that we should be mad about where the wealth goes. And so you're right that there are consumer benefits which are afforded by the efficiency of these firms to all of the consumers. But the profits of, of like all of those sales go in general to a very concentrated few, the very concentrated rich. And the idea here is, as we were talking about before, there's generally a more efficient use of that profit by distributing it more broadly. And so the concern is not necessarily about like, the problem is not Jeff Bezos owning Amazon. It's that Jeff Bezos gets the, disproportionately the returns from Amazon without necessarily having done the work to make Amazon more efficient, I guess is the way to think about it. Mm -hmm. um, Which is the basic but, claim about cyclical, you know, you get the wealth, it becomes, you can it, just live off the of dividends, you're not, yes. yeah, you're not really like, doing the I, I'm sure Jeff Bezos is a reasonably smart person and a reasonably good manager, but it's hard to believe that he's such an incredibly good manager that all of the successes of Amazon are ultimately due to him in particular, that he sure. and I don't think, should have his name I on I don't everything. think anyone yes. would say that they're ultimately due to him, but there is a, there is a you know, a, a perspective of like, you know, you ha it's, it's kind of like the, and this is, again, this is a broader uh, principle mm -hmm. about, you know, like CEO versus labor, who actually is yes. more important. It's kind of like, well, in an orchestra, you have the conductor and then you have the people playing the instruments. The conductor is not playing any instrument, right? So without, if yeah. it, with, you know, he's literally couldn't make the music, but he is like, the, the, the value is seeing every different part and putting it all together. And it's like- Yeah, and put it together. Yeah, and that I, and, th and that I don't think it's a, it's not self-evident that like that is so much less so, value, like more or less value. But I do certainly think that a good manager a good person who can see the bigger picture it's like that has a lot more value than i think people so i think that um it. i i don't want to take too much of your time i i will say i guess two points on this um this relates to the general idea of how much inequality is useful as an economic incentive and so um like right now economic inequality is really really high to stick with the ceo example the average like ceo versus worker pay is like one to 250 or so and so that's an enormous difference in income. And mm -hmm. presumably the classic argument has been that, well, that, that leads to more efficient behavior. People want to earn more money, so they become more efficient, and so they become the best, best manager. Right. Um, and or it like is whole... the case that the CEO is generating 250 times value as the... That's basically the question. In short, is the CEO actually doing that? Right. And that's like a whole, there's a whole empirical question of whether CEO pay does align with um, firm uh, successes. And like, I won't get into that too much. Sure, and that's, um, yeah, I know what you're talking about that. There's, it's debatable whether that's the case. But then again, the market is the one that, like if anyone's gonna uh, determine whether or not the CEO is worth his money, it's the market and that's, you know. One of the problems of with this though it. is, um, I don't want to get that into too much. One of the things sure. that like Piketty, Thomas Piketty, and I want to say capital in the 21st century argues is that part of the reason that we've seen um, CEOs are an example of so-called superstar incomes, people in the top one and 0.1% who have seen their labor income enormously rise because technically CEOs are getting labor income. Yeah. Um, um, and so one of the questions is whether that's due to them being genuinely more efficient in managing their firms, or it's due to basically collusion. And Piketty's argument for why there's a structural um, rise of CEO incomes is basically he thinks that, um, 
like back in the 50s, it was like a 10 to 1 ratio. CEO earned about 10 times as much as like the, 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 um, the managers. But there were structural reforms which allowed CEOs to get a closer, more intimate relation with like the people in charge of setting their salary. And so he thinks it's actually precisely due mm. to collusion that people are, in his sure. opinion, overpaid. Um, oh, yeah. So you might think the market could solve this, but the problem oh. is that if all the firms can do it, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. it's then like, individually they all want to do it. Yeah, it's like, like you have the board of directors that are kind of, you know, in bed with the CEO. They all hang around with each other and stuff. It's kind of like... Well, the, this is a bad the classic. Example. This is an example for my audience. It's kind of like the Bears front office and how we just fucking pay Matt Nagy bullshit for no reason, even though he's objectively bad. Same principle. I get that. I get that idea. Well, one of the simplest things is literally just um, if you imagine that people are friends, which they do, humans form friendships. Um, difficult, I know. I know. Um, Some and of them. you like. <laughs> One person owns 40% of like firm B and one person um, owns 40% of firm A and they're friends and they both sit on each other's board of directors. They determine each other's pay. And so to both of them's benefit, it is literally better for both of them to increase both of their incomes because they are colluding. Right. Um, and so there's a whole empirical question there that I won't get into too much. All I wanted to mention is I think it's easy to demonstrate that you can get pretty big um, efficiency gains from relatively small amounts of inequality difference. So I often cite yeah. this study about um, teacher performance pay. And so um, teacher performance pay or so-called merit pay is when you pay differently based on how well they perform. And so this is, gets bad rap in the United States um, in part because of how badly it was implemented um, in certain jurisdictions. And how difficult um, it is to measure teacher performance, right? Assuming they're getting basically, yes. Um, and in particular, in the United States, the way we did performance pay was based on absolute performance. So you get paid well if your kids were smart and you get paid poorly if your kids were dumb, mm -hmm. but you wouldn't get paid based on how much smarter you made them. And so right. the, it was it was measuring absolute well-off, but not relative change. And so um, uh, merit pay systems that are based on relative change um, were associated with like in this one meta study, which I can send. Um, having merit pay was associated with about a four weeks worth increase of education per year, which is a lot. That's one extra month per year with no change in overall teacher salary. Um, and so the, the teacher pay differences there are about like two times. You're, the, like the lowest paid teacher and the upper paid teacher are like two times different to each mm -hmm. other. Um, intuitively, I don't think it's that hard to imagine that you could have managers, for example, have like a two times pay difference and still have reasonably strong incentives to perform better and worse. It's not clear that you need people to be so incredibly wealthy as like say Jeff Bezos to be effective managers within firms. Sure. Um, yeah. And, and I, I, I can... Uh, yeah, and I, I, I definitely buy that from an, you know intuitive perspective again you know my position is always look if if any like companies are the most you know the most ruthless you know money driven profit driven machines if their ceo is not good they'll fire them as soon as possible but your point is well there's the human side of it which is i'm definitely more interested mm -hmm. kind of that into like how to how does how does that economic principle not necessarily match up to what we know yes. about people and it's like yes there and you know, the entire, the entire kind of principle, the entire field of, you know, like libertarian economics, you know, Milton Friedman style economics, where everyone's mm -hmm. a rational individual. It's like, bro, if you live in the real world, that's so fucking obviously not the case. So there's yeah, people just don't act like that. Right. Well, so, and, I, and that's, and that's the, a source of a lot of my, you know, critiques of what would you say the right wing perspective on things. They have a very I guess the, model of that. The last two things I'd note about this is we do live, there's a lot of evidence to think that we live in an era of what people sometimes call monopoly capitalism, firms are increasingly centralized. I posted that study before that like 100 firms own 40% of international firms. Um, and this has results on economic efficiency and competition. So like markups, what, what like markups beyond price of producing a good have increased for the past like 20, 30 years or so. So firms make more money for, per product without like 
I don't know if I'm making this fully clear. Markup price is like, it costs $10 to produce something. You have a 10% markup. So now it's $11. That 10% is your profit. That has been increasing over time. And generally, economists believe that increased markup is due to lack of competition. Because in theory, if there's another firm competing with you, they should just offer something at like 5% markup. And the other firm should be forced to lower your markup to like 5%. Um, one of the worries is that because we live in this era of incredibly um, condensed capital, um, like incredibly concentrated ownership and incredibly concentrated firms, um, there just isn't enough competition for the market to actually do what we're talking about. Maybe the reason that managers are so highly paid is because they're allowed to collude because there's only like 100 firms in like the, in the market where there's only 10 mm, firms sure. in a given market. And so there just isn't enough competition to allow them to be forced out. And so this is one of the arguments actually for like a more social wealth fund ownership based model, plus a huge amount of breaking up and like antitrust legislation that you have a whole bunch of small firms competing and forced to compete. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, there, There's also, sorry. Well, I was going to say that um, there's a model, I think it was Naval Rakhavant, or that's, that's how you say his name. He, he, the, he uh, gave an example of it, the current like economic mo or nature of our, what, corporate landscape is kind of like, in every industry you have, it's called the comet and dust model or something. <laughs> yes. Where it's like, yeah, you have, you know, Netflix, you have Amazon or whatever as like this huge company. And then you have a, like a million different small decentralized yeah, companies. Yeah, tiny little firms. Yeah. And, and, and like, and they, you, like, you, you know, YouTube or whatever. It's like, okay, you have YouTube as the actual platform, but then you could consider every single individual channel as its own firm using its infrastructure or whatever. And I think that, and that is kind of like a, well, do we apply antitrust here and break up the big firm, which it, serves as the infrastructure for all these little firms? Or do we, you know, how do we, it's hard to know. Right. Which one is, of the... Yes. Sorry. All I was going to say, one of the arguments that's raised in like the People's Republic of Walmart, for example, which I know is a funny name, but right. it's, it's, a, it's, it's an argument people have commonly raised is, well, it's possible that these large firms are returning efficiency gains because they are internally centrally planned economies and their planning is really, really good. Hmm. Um, sure, and so, sure, sure. Like you were talking about the computerization of like Soviet Union versus hand calculations. Yeah. Yes, that is something I talk, mentioned. Like um, for for listeners who aren't aware, Goss Plan, which was the planning agency of the Soviet Union, and which indirectly, literally planned the entire economy of 300 million people, worked out by hand for the entirety of their 70-year existence only 150 to 250 products. And you're talking about like it would be like steel would be like the product they were planning for. Yeah. Right. Um, and it's it's just. There's a whole book, if you want to read more about it, called um, How Not to Network a Nation is the title of the book, How Not to Network a Nation, um, about like the total failure of like the Soviet Union to adopt any forms of modern like planning or any forms of modern computerization of like uh, of these sorts of things. Um, so, yeah. I, Which is kind of an interesting perspective because, you know, again, people have, you know, and I, I think I, in a way, fall in this category. It's like, you know, the failings of, this, of, of communism and socialism are so fundamental, but you could make the case that the you know given the uh increase in technolo technological capabilities of computerized planning of like you're just saying with walmart being able to centrally plan it's like well maybe we can kind of decouple the you know obviously like people will always be people and people will be corrupt and like even if mm -hmm. a government is doing something there's still the same incentive so we still have to figure out how to regulate that yeah but there is an element of well you know if we have the technological capability it's like ubi like the one of the reasons i think ubi would work is because we could just fucking do it computerized. You could just here link yeah. your bank account, and then boom, and we don't need to pay. You know, ten people can manage that, right? So it's yeah, like no, it's it's very simple. That's that opens up all kinds of possibilities of a kind of you know whatever we're calling it, market socialist, democratic capitalist breed, or you know intermixed system that mm -hmm. doesn't have the the fundamental flaws of capitalism, which is 
well, everybody's a rational individual, which is bullshit, and it doesn't have the fundamental flaws of, like, Marxism, where, you know, it, it, the problem is evil capitalist versus non-evil poor people. It's, like, it's probably more complex than that. But there's a room for synthesis, and I think that, that what you're saying with the computerization of technology is the biggest, uh, you know, platform it, for that. It's a really interesting trend, because, so, um, I, I mentioned Hayek earlier. He thought that it would never, literally never be possible to computerize, um, uh, transportation of goods and ser like and services, and that was literally like one of the first things that we did. Like airplanes now are all run by a computer. Mm -hmm. um, like Amazon, the entirety of where goods go. It, it, there's literally whole stories about how weird their like internal computer like architecture is, and it works incredibly well. Sure. Um, all of it is computerized nowadays. There isn't like a stock clerk like physically deciding where like yes. this like your shoes are going to oh, go. Yeah. It's all just the mammoth Amazon warehouse somewhere deciding in its big AI brain. Yeah. You know, My background is go. in um, supply chain management, and we have like the the enterprise resource systems that plan out where inventory is going to be. Yeah. Oh, it's, you've got 50 layer, you got 900 lines of code that are calculating all these different things, taking all these different variables. Cause we have so much data availability or data yeah. available. Right. So it's like, and you can do that one more, of the, more efficiently. One of the things that I've argued is I think that there's this market planning trade-off where competition, um, this is something that if you uh, are you familiar with the name Robert Coase and if no, it's fine. No, I don't think so. No. No, so Coase was like um, he, he's big for a his his like philosophical and um, empirical defense of like property rights, but um, basically as a solution to this externality problem, and that's like beside the point. Um, uh, this point in particular, but he he like traveled around. I want to say America and Europe, looking at the internals of firms, which was like gosh among the economists of the time, because economists of the time were all about mathematical models. And then he empirically did like a sociological sort of research thing, and he noted that internally all of these firms are centrally planned. They are internally like a little government economy where what the the man at the top says goes. Um, and his argument is. Um, Setting up a market has a cost. So the, the the reason why firms internally are planned is because let's say that the, the having a market um, improves efficiency by like two percent, but it costs like three percent of of like the, the the productivity of your company. The idea is that to set up a market, you need to set up like market signals. You need to set up those middlemen that you're talking about in Wall Street and and like so on. You need like the stock clerks. Mm -hmm. um, and so sometimes it is more efficient to have essentially planned than it is to have like a, a market system, sure. um, because the planning aligns everyone's incentives and eliminates a lot right. of right. Like 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 a, like, like a single company that buys up a bunch of smaller companies and then cuts out all the waste and integrates it. Like yes, that's, that's, that's so called taking, vertical integration. Yeah, right. Yes. Exactly, taking a market and then in essentially central central planning it in that. Yes, in that and sense. so I, I know it's it's weird to think of companies as centrally planned, but like fundamentally, one of his insights well, was but that, but why. That's a, but that's a good point. That's a, it's exactly the same principle. His his whole argument, I think that it's actually a good one. Robert Coase was a defender of capitalism, but so I'm not like not going to fully endorse him. One of his most interesting interesting arguments is. Um, we set up markets where it's efficient to set up markets, and we set up plans where it's efficient to set up plans. So the reason that firms don't have markets internally is because it's not efficient, but markets overall are efficient um, because they force firms to compete and they force people to align their incentives with each, with each other. Um, so one of the interesting arguments, though, is that over time, as planning ability gets more and more available, as you noted, like the data chain gets more and more available, um, it is possible that the, the the costs of planning versus the cost of competition will shift. And so that's what, one of the arguments for why we've seen large firms emerge is because um, it is so much more efficient to plan nowadays because you have all that data availability that you just didn't have in the 1940s. Mm -hmm. You couldn't get right. like a, 
nowadays Amazon literally has like per the minute like productivity statistics for each employee. You couldn't have anything possibly like that in the 1940s. Um, it's just like a different world in terms of like the cost of right. setting up markets versus the cost of like obtaining data. Fundamentally, that's the the way he put it. He thought the reason why we set up markets. Um, was when the cost of obtaining information was higher than the cost of um, setting up middlemen was fundamentally the idea. Yeah, right, right, right. Like, so. And like the Wall Street people, it's like we don't need, there's no amount of market yes. research on an individual company. You just average it out in an ETF and you've, yeah. and you've, you've already beaten them out. So yeah, yeah. I so, buy that. Uh, in short, I, one of the interesting theories is that in the long term, you'll see more and more planning. And that the, the fear, of course, is that private planning means that wealth is accumulated to private individuals and not distributed equally and like usefully to the rest of society. Right. So that, in short, is the argument for more public ownership, something like a, a social wealth fund or as in the People's Republic of Walmart, um, the People's Amazon mm -hmm. or the People's Walmart. Sure. Right, um, right, right. But their model is much more planning and mine is much more market based. So got it. Um, and that's really all I have to say. I cool. Guess. Cool. Well, yeah, we're coming up on I. Hour 20 of his mind says, but we're um, a little bit before. Um, uh, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk to you. This is really sure. cool. Um, I want to ask that this is, so like I said, I started this channel like two and a half months ago. I don't really know what sure. it's going to be. I don't know what it is too, but it, I am a big fan of Jordan Peterson, as I mentioned. And so I just want to ask yeah. you, we won't get into debate. I want to hear just your thoughts. And then if there's ever a follow-up discussion, we can go into this. What are your thoughts on Jordan Peterson? Um, I know that most of the, most of this, I have never read Jordan Peterson's books. And from what I've read, he's a reasonably respected psychologist. So I can't speak to that. I don't know much about that. I read about his takes on religion. Um, and particularly, he had this really stupid take where he said that people can't leave, can't stop smoking if they don't have faith in God. And um, so mostly I've heard his really <laughs> I stupid think religion I, Okay, takes. fair enough. I, 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 I think it was in yeah. reference to smoke, uh, um, what is it? People who take mushrooms have an 80% yes. smoking cessation rate, which is higher than any other, uh, um, what is it called? Um, treatment that we know, of. but I get, I get, yeah, it doesn't have a faith in God. Okay. I think the, that might the, be a game of telephone, a little bit distorted, but I, I can go I get, get the quote a long time ago. I, I looked it through, um, one moment. But I, I guess in short, I, I don't necessarily know that I disagree with a lot of Jordan Peterson's like self-help stuff. It sure. seems like that might be reasonably good. Yeah. The, the main problems I have with him are like, um, he seems to insert a lot of religiosity into that self-help stuff rather than focusing purely on like um, where the research might suggest that things work. Um, so that's, I guess, my main concern there. Um, would you say, I know that he also, would, you say would, you, would you say he's, and again, I know you don't know that well, but just from your understanding, would you think that he is a net positive or a net negative for society? Um, I think that I have a pretty strong aversion to self-help in general, both personally, and I think that it tends to encourage people to think about their problems only in terms of themselves, as opposed to thinking about the ways in which society can sometimes create institutions which make problems for you. And so I think that that has been a negative aspect of it. However, it's possible that he's improved a lot of people's lives individually, and that might make them more able to participate in improving society. Right. So I don't, I can't analyze that. Fair. Yeah, yeah, I, fair. No, and I'm, yeah. and again, I'm just, I'm, I'm curious just to hear what different people think about it, because... I know it's. I would say that I know that his topic. main political effect has been encouraged, has been making, ensuring people hate um, various laws related to like trans rights. So I would say that politically that's been a negative effect, but on like a personal or a psychological sure. level, I can't, I can't evaluate. Yes, that. yes, and that definitely requires more hashing out. But um, okay, cool. I really appreciate it. Thank you again for watching, and if you have any feedback, please let me know. And uh, good luck and Godspeed.